Hey folks, before we get to the next episode of Voices in My Head, I wanted to ask you to consider leaving a tip at my website, rickleejames.com. It's always going to be my intent to offer you this podcast for free, but the reality is that there are production costs involved. Things like recording equipment updates, domain name costs, Skype credit for guest phone calls, providing the Rick Lee James mobile app for free listening, and frankly, earning a little something for the hours of preparation it takes to bring you new podcasts every week. I know it's a tough economy, and that's why I want to keep this podcast free. But if you are enjoying the podcast and would like to swing a couple dollars my way, then come by my website at rickleejames.com, click on the tab that says Tip Jar, and leave whatever amount you feel able to give through PayPal. It's like when you're at one of my concerts and I leave a tip jar in front of the stage. Now, if you can't afford anything, please don't bother to give me a tip. And if it came down to supporting me or supporting a hungry person suffering from poverty, then by all means, give to them. But if you can, swing a few shekels my way, I'd be very grateful. That's all for now, so sit back and enjoy today's podcast. Blessings to you all. Live from Springfield, Ohio, it's Voices in My Head. The official podcast of Rick Lee James. I am Rick Lee James, and you're listening to Voices in My Head. If you hear this voice today, do not turn in the window. Welcome to Voices in My Head by my amazing husband, Rick Lee James. Try that again, because I don't think it picked up anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome to Voices in My Head, the amazing podcast by my wonderful husband, Rick Lee James. Hey, how about that? We got my wife on the podcast today. It's going to be a quick introduction as we go into Voices in My Head today, but I think she should get the position for co-host. So what do you guys think out there? Well, I can't hear you. Well, talk back to me sometime, somehow, folks. Send me some feedback. Tell me what you thought of my wife. Um, <laughs> she's making faces at me as we talk right now. But I'm really excited about today's interview with Brian Zahn, who has uh, written a fantastic book, just one of the, the best I've ever read, and I mean that with all my heart. The book is called Unconditional. Uh, we've got some exciting news about upcoming shows. I've just got confirmations this week in upcoming episodes where it looks like we're going to be able to have on uh, Phil Seas from uh, Worship Leader Song Discovery. It's a great thing worship leaders get every month, and the Song Discovery list to thousands of songs every month and finds the best that is for congregational use and puts it out for the church. Uh, Christian artist Jason Gray is going to be with us on the podcast. Sarah Groves, uh, who actually just this past week uh, played at the uh, Easter prayer breakfast for President Obama and 150 other clergy types in Washington, D.C., is going to be on the show. So we've got some exciting stuff coming up and more in the future. Uh, But today I want to get straight into question of the week because uh, we actually don't have um, much time today because the interview was so good with Brian it took a little more time than usual. So we're going to go over there right now to question of the week. Question of the week. Well, this week's question of the week I made specifically because of my guest, Brian Zahn, who is a huge Bob Dylan fan, and uh, rightly he should be. Bob Dylan is fantastic, and... Uh, Brian has a bunch of Bob Dylan songs on his iPod, I think up maybe over a thousand, and he's a great writer, and so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, hey, hun, can you come over here a second? Because, uh, sorry, she went over to the stairs like she was going to leave, and I had to re-record a part just so you know what's going on. Um, but this morning I was asking you, because I didn't get very many responses, what your favorite Bob Dylan song, and do you remember what you said? No. <laughs> <laughs> it was very memorable conversation. Um, well, I'd the said, song. you like, because I don't think you knew anything that he sang. I wasn't you? sure what he sang. All I could think of was Free Fallen by, uh, I don't know if he sings it or not. <laughs> <laughs> That's Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. That's but the difference. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Brian. Well, they, they do have a little bit of a nasally sound. But I actually said, well, you like that song that, you know, To Make You Feel My Love. and 
all I know is the Garth Brooks version. <laughs> right, yeah, Garth Brooks. But still, that's by Bob Dylan, so, you know, it's... Well, um... One for two. <laughs> yeah, somebody paying tribute to him, so that's good enough. Well, the answers that we had, Matt Cole wrote in again this week, and uh, as always, um, he uh, has never missed a question of the week so far. And his answer, his favorite Bob Dylan song, which was the question of the week this week, was Man of Constant Sorrow. He said, yes, I know it is not originally his song, but I love his version minus the change to being a man from Colorado and not from Kentucky. Uh, and Matt is from Kentucky. I said that my favorite song is With God on Our Side, and uh, we talk about that a little bit in the interview, uh, Brian and I. But for right now, my wife and I would like to say something to you all. Happy Easter! Easter. Uh, so happy Easter from the Jameses. Thank you for listening to Voices in My Head podcast. Got several exciting announcements coming up in future shows, but for right now, we're going to get right into the interview with Brian Zahn. God bless you, and again, happy Easter. Thanks for listening to Voices in My Head. My guest today on Voices in My Head is the lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. He's also the author of several acclaimed books, including Beauty Will Save the World, What to Do on the Worst Day of Your Life, and Unconditional. It's my pleasure to welcome Pastor Brian Zahn to Voices in My Head. Brian, thank you for being here today. Thank you, Rick. Well, every week uh, on my podcast, I actually start with something a little different called the question of the week. And um, actually, listeners can go online and answer these questions on Facebook, on the Voices in My Head page, or my website, or they can call into the phone line and uh, answer these questions. And I actually customized this question for you this week because I know that you like this person. Uh, but my question of the week this week, and I, I always ask my guests, um, this week is, what is your favorite Bob Dylan song? Because I know you're a Oh, my fan. goodness. <laughs> and I know, I think it said on your profile you had like over 800 songs on your iPod by him. So this may be a difficult question. Yeah, well, counting bootlegs and all, I have more like 2,000 oh, wow. <laughs> uh, files of Bob Dylan on my iTunes. My favorite one. Well, see, I know them all, and it's just, you know, for real Dylan freaks, that's the ultimate question, and it just varies every day. Today, it's Visions of Dylan. That's my favorite one today. Tomorrow, it'll be different. <laughs> well, that's, that's track enough. three on the Blonde on Blonde album. Wow. 1966. All right. See, I, I, I've got street cred with Dylan. <laughs> you do. You do have street cred with Dylan. That's fantastic. I'd have to say, usually mine isn't. I'm the same way. Mine changes a lot. But usually, if somebody asks me, I have to tell them uh, with God on our side is probably my favorite one. Oh, that is such, that is such a prophetic, hard-hitting song. It really is. He wrote that when he was 24 years old, and I don't know where a 24-year-old gets that kind of insight hmm. concerning war and nationalism and that sort of thing. But yeah, that's a brilliant song. Love yeah. that song. Maybe that'll be my favorite one tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Give you some time to, to load it up and listen to it again. But Well, um, I I have uh, and have just been thrilled to, uh, to read actually one of your books. I'm looking forward to reading more, and I want to get into that in a minute. But first, I was just reading online on your profile some personal things about you and uh, something I found really intriguing is, uh, is you're a bit of a mountain climber I guess yeah I'm a I'm a wannabe mountaineer <laughs> and I've climbed some I've done some real climbing and I love it I wish I would do it more uh, it turns out that my youngest son is now going to really take up the mantle of serious mountaineer in our family he, he's really accomplished and I've been taking him into the mountains ever since he was just you know, three or four years old, and, and I was all these years having to kind of wait for him, and, and now he takes me to the mountain and waits for me. <laughs> yeah, I love mountain climbing. As far as just, like, to, to do something in a day, you know, if, what is your perfect day? Well, my perfect day certainly involves climbing a mountain at some point because I just wow. I love doing that. And my soul. And, and you did something kind of special on your 40th birthday, I guess. Did you want to tell us? Yeah, on, my, on my 40th birthday, I took my oldest son with me, and we climbed Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, which, you know, is the highest mountain in Africa. People don't necessarily always think of mountains 
Let me think of Africa, but that's a 19,340 foot climb. We took six days to reach the summit. You can go faster, but if you go faster, you run the risk of getting altitude sickness. So six days up and two days down. So that was an eight day mountain climb and it was, it was just wonderful. Really enjoyed that. Wow, Most of the time, though, we're just out in Colorado doing, you know, climbs that take a day. Although when I say they take a day, you know, that may mean starting at 2 in the morning and getting done at 6 in the evening. So it's a long day. <laughs> right. It's a long Very much. I can't imagine. That is fantastic, though. That's really awesome. Well, um, we're going to talk about climbing a mountain of a different sort today, I guess you could sure. say. And, uh, it's kind of the ultimate metaphor, isn't it? You know, mountain climbing just is the ultimate metaphor for that, dealing with things. That's right. It can be used with so many different things. Well, mm-hmm. uh, I guess it was last summer, probably around June or July, um, I was actually about to go out of town again, as I often do as a musician. And uh, during summer times, much of what I do are, are teen camps, and I'm doing you know music for different places. And I was just about to head out to West Virginia, so I knew I was going to have a few hours on the road. And I uh, I went to the local library here in town, was just looking for something interesting to read, and they had gotten a new book in for them, which was called Unconditional, and it was by an author I'd never read before, Brian Zahn, and uh, Unconditional subtitled The Call of Jesus to Radical Forgiveness. And um, I actually got the audio version of it first and listened to it through my iPod in the car. So you've already figured out that that voice on the audio version is not mine. It is not you. That's right. <laughs> he, he has a far better voice. I don't know who the guy is, but he's got a professional voice. Me, I just got a pastor voice. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, it was it was great listening to that, and I since got my own copy of the book. I've been reading through it again, and I'm trying to get prepared to even use it in some small groups at my church, and um, just am thrilled to be able to talk to you about it, because like I said before, you know, you talk about the ultimate metaphor, but Forgiveness really is that mountain that I think we have trouble climbing because in some sense as believers, I think we're okay with Jesus forgiving and we're okay with even Jesus forgiving our enemies, but I don't think we're okay with us following the example of Jesus, you know, and us forgiving our enemies and us being like Christ and, and us actually dealing with forgiveness. So uh, I'm really was excited to find this book and to find some of the things you read and even to find that people like Miroslav Volf and Eugene Peterson had been uh, recommending this book. So I thought, well, how can you go wrong with that? So which is, you know, that's some kind of amazing street cred, too, when you think about it in the theology world. So, congrats. Yeah, I was, I was, I was very uh, blessed to have men like Miroslav Volf and Eugene Peterson be enthusiastic about the book. That, I, have to, I have to be honest, that made me happy. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, those are, those are good blessings that God gives us in life when things like that happen. Well, I, I want to kind of dive right in real quick because some of the questions that you bring up in the book, and I, I really just want you know to hear you um, more than me probably today because you have a lot more interesting things to say. I'm not super smart. I just try to surround myself with people that are. So uh, uh, we'll see what you have to say. That's about the same thing. As me. <laughs> It's about the same thing. Well, um, in your book, you say that if if Christianity isn't about forgiveness, then it's about nothing at all. And uh, you're dealing with some questions about, you know, is forgiveness always possible? Is it always right? And, and you know, are there sins so heinous, so damaging that, you know, to forgive them would be an immoral act in itself? And uh, I'd like to start out maybe just talking about some things like that because, the the obvious metaphor, I guess, would be um, Hitler, you know, and everybody always goes to, you know, poor Hitler. I don't know if I could say poor Hitler or not, but it seems like everybody uses him as the, <laughs> you know, the one big thing. Well, that's all well and good to follow Jesus, except when you come against Hitler, you know. And um, I, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts, because I know towards the beginning of your book, you start talking about Simon Wiesenthal and, and the flower and some things like that. But maybe you could just kind of give us your view on this topic a little bit. Yeah, let, let me let me just start off with some groundwork. First of all, I'll say this. Um, the, the title of the book, you have to say it right, it's not really unconditional, it's unconditional. Yeah, with a question. <laughs> it, has a, it has a question mark there. And so I'm 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 introducing a question. Now we're gonna we're gonna move towards maybe 
maybe, possibly, some kind of answer. And, and I'll come back to your, your real questions here, questions in a moment, but over the past, however long this book's been out, year and a half or whatever it is, maybe not even that long, I don't know. And, uh, when, so, so I've had lots of opportunities to talk to people, because they'll, you know, call me or find me or I'll be at a book signing. And very often they'll say, are you saying, and they'll raise some great dilemma of forgiveness. And I'm, I, my general response is, no, I'm not saying anything exactly like that, but that you are wrestling with the question, is good enough for me at this point? That we begin to think about it, that we begin to struggle with it. So anyway, the book title is framed as a question. Is the call of Jesus to radical forgiveness indeed unconditional? It's a question. Let's talk about it. Secondly, my primary motive for writing this book, even though I am a pastor, I was not really writing what I would call a pastoral book dealing with issues of personal forgiveness, although I think you can extrapolate that application from the book what really motivated me to write the book was the state of evangelical Christianity in America. And that's why I come up with the line, if Christianity isn't about forgiveness, it's about nothing at all. I was really trying to understand how we are going to respond to this us versus them paradigm that seems to have captured the imagination of American evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. So that evangelicalism has become a kind of uh, political ideology, a voting block, and, um, and the idea of radical forgiveness gets pushed to the margins, and I'm afraid we're losing our center. Now, you mentioned Hitler. Uh, I, I very intentionally brought up the Holocaust. I'm, I'm, I got my copy, and I just turned to it, I think, by page three. <laughs> yeah. Because I just thought, okay. If I'm going to talk about the radical nature of forgiveness and begin to suggest that possibly to take up your cross and follow Christ involves us to the extent following him that we are to emulate his moment upon the cross where he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because I think that's the real center of Christianity. Maybe we can talk about that in a minute. Mm. But I thought, okay, if I'm going to push people to the edge of trying to contemplate forgiveness being unconditional, I know exactly what they're going to bring up. They're going to say, okay, what about Hitler? What about the Holocaust? And I just thought, okay, so what about it? Does forgiveness have anything to say to the Holocaust? And that's why I bring up Simon Wiesenthal and his book and his symposium and his whole story of being a, a, a Jew in a, in a concentration camp who was asked by a dying SS soldier for forgiveness. He found that he could not offer that forgiveness, but he asks 50-some other thinkers, religious leaders uh, of all kinds of religious backgrounds, uh, what do you think? What should be the response? You can put yourself in my position. Is forgiveness possible in a situation like that? So I just try to dialogue with Simon Wiesenthal and, and try to deal with that. But instead of just skirting around it, you know, I thought, well, let's just, let's just head it head on. And I guess you've noticed through the book that the Holocaust is kind of a recurring theme. It shows up in probably seven or eight of the ten chapters of the book. We keep returning to that. Yeah. So that was a really long response to your simple question. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Um, well, and I, I really, you know, I, it's, it's probably hard for us to even um, think of anything worse than the Holocaust. And I know that, you know, for people who... You know, we weren't alive and around for that event, but I guess the reason it resonates so much is because it has had such a huge influence and such a huge impact. And um, and I love that in, in one portion of the book, as you're talking about uh, uh, Wiesenthal, and um, you talk about uh, not too long after that, you know, the, the people that, that flew in on 9-11 and box cutters and and, you know, that that day changed the world, and then you're asking the question, you know, but did it really, you know, did yeah. it really? Has it ever been anything different than that, really? Is it just the same as Cain and Abel in the beginning? And um, I, I wonder if you could share just, you know, and this is kind of a teaser for people that haven't read your book, if you could recount a little bit of, 
of uh, Simon Wiesenthal's story, and you did give a little bit of that, but just in case people may not know who he was. Yeah, I'd love to. I'll just slow down and, and give a little more of that story. Okay. Simon Wiesenthal was an Austrian Jew that ended up in a concentration camp in Poland. And uh, at one point, he was on a work detail that was being that was taken to a military field hospital. While he was there, as a part of his work detail, a nurse at random apparently pulled him out of the line to, and took him to the bedside of a dying Nazi SS soldier, uh, a young man in his early 20s by the name of Carl. Carl had grown up in a Christian home, but had joined the Hitler Youth against his parents' wishes and had had uh, been eventually become a, a, a Nazi SS soldier who had participated in many atrocities uh, during the war, including in one village hurting some 300 Jews into a two-story house, setting it on fire, and shooting those that tried to escape. He was directly participated in that, and he himself even shot children mm. that uh, were trying to get out of that burning house. Simon Wiesenthal sits down with this man, and for a couple of hours, uh, Carl tells him his story and confesses his sins. And he says, look, uh, I knew I couldn't die in peace. I know I'm a dying man, and I know I couldn't die in peace unless I could seek the forgiveness from a Jew. And Simon sat there and listened to him for a couple of hours. At one point, gave him a drink of water, brushed away some flies, but never spoke to him. Everyone spoke. And when the crucial moment came, and when he said, look, uh, you know, can you forgive me? I can't die in peace without your forgiveness. Uh, that was all Simon could take. And he got up and he walked out. Uh, miraculously, he survived uh, his Holocaust concentration camp experience. Some, I think, 70 or 80 members of his extended family did not survive. Um, and then he writes a book about it called The Sunflower. In the first half of the book, he tells his story that I've tried to, just in a very, very abbreviated manner, give people a sense of what that book's about. But then what he did was, I think he selected 54 different people and asked them, okay, what should, should I have forgiven them or not? And there are Jews and Christians and Buddhists and Hindus and atheists and secularists. And he has all kinds of people. And it's very interesting that only Christians and Jews, I mean, Christians and, 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 and Buddhists, excuse me, were the only ones that said, yeah, forgiveness could be possible in a situation like that. Um, what I did was, I mean, and the very cover of the book, it has right on the cover of the book. It says, "You are a uh, you're in a concentration camp. A dying Nazi asks your forgiveness. What would you do?" Hmm. And so I, I took it on. If you don't mind, maybe I could just read what my response to that is. Yeah, I was actually going to ask if you would do that. So we, all right, we, so, yeah, I, I found it here, and here it's about a page and a half. But here is my imagined letter to Simon Wiesenthal, who asks of the public at large. What should be done? Here's my response. Dear Mr. Wiesenthal, first of all, let me say I will not presume to sit in judgment of your actions. You showed kindness to a dying Nazi soldier as you held his hand, brushed away the flies, and gave him water to drink. You showed great kindness to his mother in not destroying the memory of her son. And I agree with Lutheran theologian Martin Marty, who says non-Jews, and perhaps especially Christians, should not give advice about the Holocaust experience to its heirs for the next 2,000 years, and then we shall have nothing to say. Cheap, instant advice from a Christian would trivialize the lives and deaths of millions. Nevertheless, since you asked the question, let me try to reply. I cannot say what I would have done. I can only, only what I could, only what I could hope I would have done. As a Christian, I would hope that I would reply something in this manner to my dying enemy. This is what I, this is what I hope I would have been able to say. I don't know that I could have. Hmm. I think really I might have done far worse than Simon Wiesenthal, but in my best moment, 
I, I hope that I could say something like this. I cannot offer you, I cannot offer you forgiveness on behalf of those who have suffered monstrous crimes at your hands, at the hands of those with whom you willingly aligned yourself. I have no right to speak on their behalf. But I can tell you that forgiveness is possible. There is a way for you to be reconciled with God, whose image you have defiled. And there is a way for you to be restored to the human race from which you have fallen. There is a way, because of the one who never committed a crime, cried from the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I believe that your sin does not have to be a dead end, that there is a way forward into reconciliation. The forgiveness of which I speak is not a cheap forgiveness. It is not cheap because it was not cheap for Jesus Christ to suffer the violence of the cross and offer no retaliation but love and forgiveness. It is not a cheap forgiveness because it requires of you deep repentance, including a commitment to restorative justice for those you have wronged. There is no cheap forgiveness for your sins, but there is a costly forgiveness. If you in truth turn from your sins in sorrow and look to Christ in faith, there is forgiveness. A costly forgiveness that can reconcile you to God and restore you to the human race. I cannot forgive you on behalf of others, but on my own behalf. And in the name of Jesus Christ, I tell you, your sins are forgiven. Welcome to the forgiving community of forgiven sinners. May the peace of Jesus Christ be with you. Now, this is what I hope I would have said, but for all I know, I might have treated the dying enemy with far less kindness than you did in the admiration of your dignity primes on. And so that's my, that's my answer to his question. Sure. And, and, and you notice that, that the, the one Bible verse I quote in it is Jesus upon the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that is a recurring theme throughout the book. That verse shows up over and over. Because, look, we have to find some way of centering our reading of Scripture. You know, we're entrusted with this holy canon of sacred texts that we Christians call the Bible. 66 books, Genesis to Revelation. It's quite big. You know, it's, mm. it's over a thousand pages long. And it's a bit unwieldy. And I think most of us by now have figured out, those of us that work with the text, those of us that work with Scripture, is if you go to the Bible with an agenda to prove something, you can pretty much, with a little bit of cleverness, prove anything you want. You can just go to the Bible and say, okay, this is what I want to believe. Can I find something in the Bible that will seem to endorse it? If you're clever enough, you can pretty much pull that off, and we've seen that done throughout you know, history. So we have to find a place, okay, where are we going to center our reading? Well, if I want, I can go to Joshua, and I can find Joshua going forth and slaying the enemy Canaanites and say, okay, that's what, that's what God is like. And I'm going to center my reading there, although I don't think most of us want to do that. I think we have to center our reading on Scripture, on, on, in Christ. And I think the defining moment of Jesus' life would be, Christ upon the cross, offering forgiveness, taking the hate, the sin, the violence that was thrust into his, his own body and recycling it not into continued vengeance so that the kinetic energy of sin and reprisal just goes on forever. But in that moment, sin and hate that was violently inflicted into Christ, find the place that it can die. Because Jesus recycles it not into revenge, but into forgiveness. Hmm. The great Swiss theologian Hans Erzon Balthazar, he said this. He said, being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation who God is. Hmm. If I had to pick one point in the life of Christ, one passage of Scripture, and I'm going to say, okay, that's what I believe God is like, it would be Christ upon the cross, his arms outstretched and offered embrace, receiving the sin of the world, violently sinned into him, 
and his response being simply, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I think that becomes the standard. That becomes the pattern. That becomes what you and I, as Christ followers, as Christians, as, as those that are called to follow him, are to emulate. Hmm. And, and I think we have to, I think our every action, our theology, our, our place in the public, public square, how we, how we relate to the wider society as Christians, it has to conform to that image or it's, or it's deficient in Christian form. Anyway, there was another long rant. Yeah, no, that was it was wonderful, very good, and you know it's so appropriate that as we're heading into Holy Week this next week, and uh, you know, and and really, actually, I think when this podcast comes out, it's going to be the weekend of Easter, and uh, how appropriate it is to be able to talk about that. And you know, I've 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 always been struck by the image of Jesus returning from the grave. Um, not with a, a cry of vengeance and now you're going to get yours, but really with outstretched open arms that said, you know, you're you're forgiven. And then to even bestow upon disciples, you know, this this wonderful calling of, you know, telling them you have the opportunity to go out and tell people their sins are forgiven. You know, and and what a beautiful thing that is. I mean, what who of us? And let's remember that the resurrected Christ still carries the wounds of his suffering in his resurrected body. Mm, But they are no longer a source of pain or suffering. They are simply part of his memory. Mm. One of the the things that comes up, there's a, a, um, oh, you know, the trite saying, uh, forgive and forget. I I think actually forgetting is useful in, in trivial matters. A slight insult, uh, you know, you have a fight with your wife or something. You know, I think it, that's just to forgive and forget. But when we're talking about uh, deep wounds that have produced profound suffering, we cannot ask people to forget that because that will significantly alter their identity. In other words, the Jewish people can never forget the Holocaust. And when they have the saying, never forget, if by that they mean we must, uh, never forget that this is part of our long, sad, tragic story. I agree. If by that they mean we must constantly maintain a posture of vengeance, I think that's unhealthy. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's something that we can, as Christians, can imitate. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the prophet Zechariah seems that he foresaw something about the wounds of Messiah. And he places within the mouth of Messiah these strange, wonderful, mysterious words. It seems as if though this, this, he's portrayed as a shepherd, and people are saying, well, what about these wounds in your hands? Mm. And Zechariah says, oh, he puts these words in the mouth of, of the Messiah. Oh, these are the wounds that I received in the house of my friends. Oh. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. I mean, imagine Jesus saying, uh, someone says, okay, Jesus, to the resurrected Christ, uh, what about the, these holes, these wounds in your hands, in your feet, in your side? Oh, yes, uh, I remember that. Those are the wounds that I received in the house of my friend. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely no sense of bitterness, desire for reprisal, revenge, retaliation. I don't want a cycle of recycled revenge. I don't want a battle from beginning to end. You know, kind of quote Coldplay there. <laughs> uh, instead, instead, Jesus says, "Look, this is, this is, uh, yeah, this happened. I remember that. But I loved the people then, and I love them now. And the scars remain because it's part of my story and identity. But the pain has been eradicated through the concepts of forgiveness." I think I think we're called to imitate that. Sure. So I'm not saying that every scar, every wound is going to go away. I think it can come to the point where it no longer is a source of pain. And, and we may remember them because we need to remember it's part of our identity. Sure. And and another thing that you know you bring out so well in your book is just this whole concept of um forgiveness is not, you know, telling somebody that, that what happened 
that they did to you or, or this thing that happened that it didn't matter. It, it's actually quite the opposite of that. That these things that happen, you know, like that Christ bears the wounds, um, that these things did matter. These things were significant, but um, that. To me, it just shows only the grace of God, only the grace of Christ could actually come upon us in such a way and and change those things to make that part of our healing and part of our forgiveness process, you know. And, and I think the real misconception when we talk about being people of forgiveness or, you know, I'm I'm a person that tries to be a, a pacifist, and I say tries to be, <laughs> and, you know, when I, when I talk about that, it's like, um, I think people get the wrong idea that just that we would say, oh, it didn't matter. Oh, 9-11 didn't matter. Oh, the Holocaust didn't matter. But, you know, it did matter. It mattered deeply. But the cross is the answer to all of this, you know, and, and the resurrection and, and all of this. So I, I so appreciate your words and the way that you're bringing that out. And I actually want to talk about um, quickly. I mean, I, I don't know how much you've been following the headlines lately. I, I seem to be kind of in and out with the news networks. But, you know, right now it seems like the the media is hitting uh, the case of Trayvon Mitchell, who was killed in, in Georgia. Mark. Trayvon Martin, yeah. yeah uh, or Martin, him. I'm sorry, I, I said it wrong. The Martin. keen interest I have. And, and uh, it's, it's very interesting. It seems like there's almost these sides you can see uh, being built up on both sides of, uh, you know, um, no, no, Trayvon wasn't that great of a kid and, and he deserved it, or, you know, George was just in self-defense, or George was a racist, or whoever. And, you know, it's it brings to mind all this again that, you know, the way of Christ is so important in the way that we approach these things. And um, when when I think about that case, um, I actually think a little bit about um, it's actually quite a different case. But at the same time, it's not something you talk about uh, later on in your book that is actually brought out in the book Amish Grace. And um, I, I wonder if you could just share a little bit of, of that story. And I know it happened a few years back. Um, in an Amish schoolhouse where several of the children um, were, were basically just executed by a man. Um, but the response of the Amish community, would you care to recount just a little bit of that and just kind of tell us uh, some of that story? And Because I, I feel like it so powerfully enacts and lives out this lifestyle of what forgiveness is and, and deciding in advance that we're going to be people of forgiveness. Yeah, I'd be happy to. But let, let me just throw in real quick, just because I want to, my, my comment on the uh, Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman situation and yeah. the tragedy. You know, I could speak to what I think about uh, standard ground law, or I could talk about the proliferation of handguns in America, but I don't really want to address it as, a, as, a, as an American citizen. I want to address it as a Christ follower. And so I think Christians have a different way of looking at these kind of situations. Because I want to say to Christians now, this is only to, if you're not a Christian, then this doesn't apply to you, don't worry about it. But if you call yourself a Christ follower, I want to say, remember when Jesus said, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, stand your ground, produce your handgun, and shoot them? Remember when Jesus said that? Hmm. Yeah, neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was just reading after that in. Exactly. Um, Okay, the story of of um, the, the story of the of the, uh, the whole situation there in uh, what's the name of that town? I'm trying to remember the name of the town. Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, happened back in 2006 when a man by the name of Charles Roberts, who had uh, lost a child, it's I, I don't remember all the details quite as well as I should right now. It's been a while since I wrote the book, you know. But uh, yeah, I understand. Um, he, he and his wife had a, had a, apparently a lovely family. He he drove a dairy truck, and but they had a they had a, they had a child. Are, are, are you hearing me all right? Yeah, I can hear you. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I, was, I was I was picking up something else. Okay, I'm sorry. No, that's uh, the, the story of Amish Grace. Well, Charles Roberts who was a dairy um, truck driver in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, had a wife and a couple of kids and seemed to have a good life, but he had a child that had died shortly after birth, I'm thinking just a few hours after birth, and somehow he just saw that as a 
tremendous injustice of God. He built up all kinds of rage against God, and he wanted somebody to pay. Hmm. And, and by the way, I might just throw in this idea that, that forgiveness is not an abandonment of justice, but it is a reworking of what is going to constitute justice. Ultimately, if reconciliation doesn't have the final word, then justice is probably unattainable. What you do is you just participate in a cycle of unending revenge and retaliation. Hmm. That's that's a large thought. Let me get back to this story, though. So Charles Roberts, uh, in his own mind, descends into the abyss, and he says, I've got to make God pay. You know, in his distorted view of things, he believes that God somehow killed his little daughter and that he's going to make God pay by killing innocent little girls. And so he goes into an Amish schoolhouse on October 2nd, 2006. And he, he lets, he, he forces the teacher to leave and all the boys to leave. He keeps ten girls. Eventually he binds them and he shoots each one of them in the head. Somehow five of them survived, but five of them didn't. And then he turned the gun on himself and committed suicide. You know, that's, it's, it's horrible. I mean, you just, you just, it takes your breath away and you just, you, and we all have the same reaction. We just can't understand how a human being could do that. But here's what makes this story more than just a tragic uh, story. Before the sun had set on that day, the members of the Amish community who have, who are, who are in the raw moments of this grief had gone to the wife, I believe her name was Amy, Amy Roberts, and had gone to the parents of Charles Roberts and said, we want you to know that we, that we have no animosity against you. We know that you are suffering as much as we are. Mm. And we want you to know that we, we have nothing but love toward you. We hope you'll stay in this community. We want to help you with the healing process. We also want you to know we have already forgiven your husband, we've already forgiven your son for what he did. Well, this just captured the imagination of the American people. And it completely changed the whole storyline. Now think about this. When we talk about nickel mines, we tend to almost talk now about the miracle of nickel mines rather than the tragedy of nickel mines. Now there's a deep, profound, horrific tragedy in the story. Sure. But the storyline takes a radical turn to the power of forgiveness. Now, the Amish community of Nickel Mines was handed a script that they had no desire to participate in. They had no choice to participate. It was just handed to them. It's just one of these, you know, things that happen. And they're handed this script, and they're supposed to now play the role purely of victim, probably an embittered, enraged victim. They're handed the script that involves ten of their of their children being shot, five of them murdered. And yet what they did with the script was they refused to follow the script. Instead they embraced the alternative script given to us, taught to us, and modeled supremely by Jesus Christ, and they responded with radical forgiveness. So that they became something other than victims. Mm. They became you might even say it this way, heroes within their own story. They became objects of admiration and wonder. And the news media, instead of just reporting on what Charles Roberts had done, their storyline changed, and they began to try to figure out how in the world can there be people who can respond like that. And they asked him. And at one point, a news reporter asked an Amish grandmother, uh, did you all sit down and meet and decide corporately to do this, to forgive Charles Roberts, and she just laughed, and she said, well, no, it's just, this is what we do. In other words, they had been so formed by nonviolence, by the radical example of Jesus of forgiveness, they had been so formed by that story in their own community that this was simply the only option they had. This was the way they were going to respond. doesn't mean it's easy. No way do I want to trivialize it. I, I don't want to say that they just, you know, that's they, they they just forgave and that was easy. No, it was very difficult. 
But when the day came around, you know, the following week would be a week of funerals. And they buried five of those little Amish girls there in nickel mines. But then the day comes around for the funeral of Charles Roberts. And you think, you know, well, who's, who's going to be at that funeral? Who's going to come to the funeral of a mass murderer? Well, there was his immediate family, the immediate family of Charles Roberts, and something like 70 members of the Amish community. They came and they wept and they mourned and they grieved with the Roberts family. And the funeral director there said, if I've ever seen a miracle in my life, it was that day. I saw a miracle of grace. Hmm. Okay, that's the kind of thing. Look, you know, what? what is the public face of Christianity, and especially evangelical Christianity? And, of course, evangelical derives its name from, you know, the Greek, Galion and, and for gospel and all that. But the public face of Evangelical Christianity in America has become a kind of uh, angry political voting block. Right. And I think that's just an absolute tragedy. Mm-hmm. What if, I mean, just use your imagination, what if when we said evangelical Christian, the first thing that came to people's mind was, oh, those are those people that practice radical forgiveness. Those are those people that are so much like Jesus that they can forgive no matter what. Mm. Well, you know. Yeah. That would be... You know, and so, so really, I'm writing unconditional, not so much dealing with issues of personal forgiveness on a pastoral level, although I think that does apply, but I'm, I'm really trying to ask the question, what should... Christianity in the 21st century American landscape look like? And I'm, I'm afraid it looks political, it looks angry, it looks like it has a clenched fist and a furrowed brow. I think it needs to begin to look more like Jesus with outstretched arms upon the cross, saying, Father, forgive them for they know what they do. Hmm. Wow. Well, uh, that's uh, thank you so much for sharing that story. I'm kind of getting tears in my eyes just thinking about it again, and and I, I'm just amazed at the really those people of faith. Um, I guess I'm just really amazed at the as you said the radical forgiveness that's made possible through Christ, and um and and that really can change the world. And and, and you've mentioned this a couple of times, and since we're going a little bit more cosmic here. Um, let's talk for just a second, because I'm I'm always interested in in I guess what my response should be and and how a Christian should respond to things like nationalism when it meets up with the church and what we're you know supposed to do in that and, and I know there's a lot of debate and, and you just mentioned yourself um, that the political landscape it seems like um, you know evangelicalism it's taken a turn for the worse as far as what it's portrayed as. And um, and I, I see it often in my own church and, and in the people that I worship with. And um, I, I don't think that a lot of people realize that nationalism is, is something completely different than Christianity. <laughs> and um, I, I just wonder if you could address a little bit of that. You know, some of the um, some of the approaches that maybe we should have as believers, at least in your view, as you look at Scripture and Jesus. And, you know, kind of the balance that's there um, between when a nationalism meets a faith, so to speak, and maybe some of the dangers that can be lying in there as well. The problem with nationalism is that it is a direct rival with the kingdom of God. Hmm. Now, we don't tend to see it that way. It's, and there are many reasons for that. First of all, the word kingdom is a bit unfortunate. Because it's an archaic term. We don't speak of kingdoms anymore. We speak of governments. I think it would help people to understand that when Jesus is speaking of the kingdom of God, he is simply speaking of the reign and rule of God. The government of God coming into the world through what he was doing. Um, Jesus was bringing the reign, the rule, the government, the administration, the policy of God into the world, but in a very counterintuitive way. So some people recognized it and some people didn't. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who belongs to this, this very conservative, bring, you know, you know, bring Israel back to God movement, mm-hmm. 
he comes to Jesus, he's a bit confused, and Jesus says, look, Nicodemus, unless you, unless you are born from above, born again, but I mean, literally it's born, literally the text is born from above. And, and the idea is, the reason though it gets translated born again is it's, it's like our idiom, take it from the top. You're a musician, Rick, and you know that if you're sure. rehearsing, you might rehearse bits and pieces of a song, but then you say, okay, guys, let's take it from the top. That means go to the beginning and start over again. Right. Do the whole thing. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless you take it from the top and are willing to rethink everything, you'll never even see the kingdom of God. Hmm. Because the kingdom of God was already emerging. It was being inaugurated. It was present in what Jesus was doing, and yet Nicodemus didn't have the eyes to see that. Well, if we if we reduce the ministry of Jesus, the life of Jesus, his if we reduce if we reduce Jesus to saving our uh, soul for a post mortem experience, then what that does is okay, Jesus died on the cross so that I can go to heaven when I die, and now we are free then pretty much to run the world however we want. And then that feeds into all kinds of nationalistic agendas. The problem I have with nationalism is that God actually has a nation. Hmm. He already has a kingdom that calls us to give our supreme allegiance to it. And it is the kingdom of Christ. Now, I am convinced that uh, a call to live the Sermon on the Mount does not make a person an anarchist. It makes them highly socially responsible. Mm-hmm. But I am not using uh, the machinations of the political process of this age to shape the world. What I'm doing is I'm trying to be a part of this alternative society that is the kingdom of God. Mm. Now, we run into problems when we think, okay, the kingdom of God, yeah, you know, that'll come. when Jesus comes back, then the kingdom of God. No, we cannot say that. Uh, we live in this tension of what is called both the now and the not yet. Is the kingdom of God yet more and more to come? Well, certainly. Indeed. I agree. But we dare not say the kingdom of God has not come. We cannot say that. Hmm. And what we are to be, Rick, as, as, a, as a people who confess Christ, as the community of the baptized, we are to be a prophetic people in that we are from the future. We are to embody where this thing is headed. Think about when you go to the movies. You go to the movie and you see, uh, before the feature film, they show previews. They show those trailers. They show a, a, a preview of a coming movie. It's not the whole movie. But it's enough of it that it gives you an idea of what that movie is going to be like. That is the role of the church hmm. within society. We are to, the, the wider society should be able to look at the church and say, ah, I see where this thing is supposed to head. I see where this is going to go. But when we, but when we refuse to do that, when we refuse to be a prophetic people by belonging to that which is to come, uh, well, we, we lose our prophetic voice. And when we lose our prophetic voice, that's when we get so interested in the whole political process. Hmm. Look, Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom. If that's not real to us, then that's when we begin to lust for Caesar's sword. And we want to take the sword, and we want to have that kind of power and think that we can shape the world that way. I think what's happened is our abysmally low ecclesiology, that is our very, very low view of the church, has um, left us with the sense that we have no other option for shaping the world than by the conventional means of political power, because the church is, is, we have such a low view of it. I think what we need is a much higher ecclesiology, a much higher view of the church, and say, Look, the primary task of the church is simply to be, right now, presently, God's alternative society within the earth. Hmm. Yeah. But I didn't really touch on nationalism like I should. Okay, nationalism. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, part of the problem is it's, it's, it's just it's very simple. I mean, let's just take, let's just take the, the common phrase, God bless America. Well, 
okay, fine. I mean, but do, do you mean God bless America as opposed to what? Hmm. Uh, if you know, we like to say we're number one, America, number one. We're number one. That we love that little chant, a little mantra we have. Yeah. We're number one. Well, what does that mean? I mean, would, is God committed the idea that America must have uh, a robust economy? based upon the importation of cheap consumer goods made by people who are working for 25 cents an hour? Hmm. I mean, if, if that's what it takes for America to be number one in, in that sense, is that something God is interested in? If it means that America, you know, we're number one means that America must have the supreme military, is that something God is particularly interested in? In turning more and more plowshares into swords and, and pruning hooks into spears, is that something God is interested in? Hmm. I think, I think uh, America is not a legitimate uh, body for us to to seek to invoke God's blessing upon. <laughs> what right. we should ask God's blessing to be invoked upon is the human race. Right. Hmm. Because what has happened is when Christ comes as the as the king of the Jews, as, as the true son of David, the true seed of Abraham, who fulfills the covenant promises that God made to Abraham, that he would bless all of the nations, that he made to Abraham, that his son would sit upon a throne forever. What happens is, Jesus, and you see this happening in his ministry, Jesus is redefining, reframing, reforming, reimagining Israel, and expanding it, so that now, in the new covenant, the the chosen people is the human race, and the Holy Land is the whole earth. Hmm. And we are to be participating as the community of the baptized in bringing the reign of Christ and the blessing of God to all of the nations, not one as opposed to another. Which was, you know, it, in in my view, and I, I think it was N.T. Wright who really brought this out, and I, I always forget what book it was that it came out in, but um, when he was talking about, you know, we, we often talk about Israel, and, and um, you know, oftentimes even through Scripture, people were trying to set up, you know, um, the kingdom of Israel as though that particular nation, you know, and, and I guess you could kind of insert <laughs> any nation's name in um, as far as when we start, in, you know, defending things with murderous intensity and things like that. And um, what's interesting was N.T. Wright was talking about, he said, you know, Israel was a chosen nation, but, but we're thinking about what it means to be chosen wrongly. It's not that we were chosen to be the number one in the world and like you had just described America – but actually, in fact, that we were chosen to enact this kingdom, that Israel was, was the first to be enacted, and they were blessed to be chosen to go into the world and invite others in. And uh, it's very interesting that I, I think that, you know, the, the kingdom of God is, is really, in, in my view, and, and even Jesus is embodying for us this whole idea of the new Israel, not that we are... Uh, you know, to strive to be number one or whatever, but we're actually called to be people of grace who are inviting and who are allowing people to come in. Um, an interesting thing when you were just mentioning that, and and you probably haven't heard this, is one of my early podcasts, but I had a friend on, um, and I'm a bit of a comic book nerd, and uh, mm -hmm. I, I tend to weekly find myself going to my local comic shop and hanging out with the guys there and talking about stuff. And not too long ago, um, in in a Superman comic, I believe it was like Action Comics number nine hundred, and a very short story they had uh, written by David S. Goyer, who has authored a lot of screenplays and things like that. But he had a story in there that caused a whole lot of controversy because um, in that story, Superman was seeing suffering of people around the world, and he comes back to talk to an agent of the government, and he says. Um, in that story, just for me paraphrasing, he says, truth, justice, and the American way is just not enough anymore. And um, and he says, I'm immediately at this point renouncing my citizenship because I need to be a part of this world community. And it was like, wow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the Internet, at least as far as, uh, you know, comic book nerd Internet sites exploded um, because people were just, you know, going out and, and, you know, burning their Superman toys and ripping their comics up and all kinds. And how dare he be so un-American? And 
And to me, I just felt like, wow, somebody is actually getting this kingdom concept that that actually, you know, those who are in power um, actually have this responsibility to be the helper and the lover of, of others and those that can actually be a part to help the suffering of all, not just the people in my clique. And um, so just it's just interesting thinking about that again with some of the things that you said today. I really appreciate your insights on that. Baptism is the naturalization process that brings us into a different order. Hmm. And it subordinates, it, it calls for, requires, demands a severe subordination of all other allegiances. Hmm. Yes, I'm an American citizen, I have an American passport. Uh, I appreciate that. There's a lot that's very good about America. And I appreciate the opportunities it gives me. But I tell you, that allegiance to America is severely subordinated hmm. the moment that I become a Christian. Truly. Now, we're, we're coming up on Palm Sunday. I know when the, when this podcast comes out, it's after Palm Sunday, but I'm in a Palm Sunday mood. <laughs> That's true. Sunday. And let's think about that. Jesus comes in and he, 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 the people are cheering Hosanna as a deliberate, look, you know, it sounds real spiritual and religious, but let's remember that when the crowd is cheering, Jesus is weeping. Mm-hmm. And this is the, Jesus hides from the triumphalistic crowd that tries to force him to be their war-waging king. And then Jesus weeps over the nationalistic crowd when their hosannas are meant to egg him into violent revolution. Wow. Um, they wanted Jesus to be the second coming of Judah Maccabeus, Judah the Hammer, who launched a violent revolution against the... Uh, against the Greek overlords a couple of generations earlier. And Jesus refused to fill that role. He refused to subordinate the kingdom of God to a nationalistic agenda. And I think we still want to we want to attach Jesus to our nationalistic agenda so that he can bless our wars and make us number one and make sure our economy stays ahead of China. And none of that is involved in what Jesus Christ is doing in establishing his kingdom. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. One, That'll be popular. Yeah. That, no, it's it's good stuff, though. It's necessary, and it's good to hear that. I think we as Christians, we really need to recapture that and what it means to be a part of this kingdom. And, and as you said before, and I've, I've tried to say this a lot, is, um, you know, I really feel like the kingdom of God is in the now, and it's something that God is, is, has already begun and is enacting. And we often say, you know, Jesus came, died, and was resurrected so that I can go to heaven when I die. And I think the fact of the matter is, you know, Jesus came and died and was resurrected so that I could go to heaven when I live. And, uh, yeah. you know, it really is uh, very much about the kingdom of God in our midst and what it means to enact that. Um, well, Brian, it has been just a real pleasure, and I, I hate it's almost been an hour that we've been talking, so I hate to take too much of your time. Maybe we can yeah, have a goodbye, though, didn't it? It did. Maybe we can have a follow up one of these days because I, I actually am, am intrigued too, and I don't want to get into it now. But your your five signposts it says on your website when you talk about mm-hmm. cross mystery, eclectic community, and revolution, and maybe yeah. one day I can have you back and we can talk about that. Be- and, and because you say you could talk for hours on those things, so you know I really could. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I, I do want to tell everybody if you've not had a chance uh, to read anything by Brian Zahn, um to me, uh, unconditional is a good place to start. There's even a small group discussion guide that you can get with that, and it's really, really important that the church, that we as believers, begin to think about what this means to enact forgiveness, a radical forgiveness, and what the call of Jesus actually is in our life. Um, and you also have, I, I believe that your your newest book is Beauty Will Save the World, which is actually a chapter in, in your book as well, Unconditional. Yeah, I, I took the ninth chapter of, of Unconditional, and that became the launching pad for my latest book that's been out since January, Beauty Will Save the World. I'm very excited about that book. I'm really looking forward to reading that one whenever I can get my hands on it. So um, quickly before uh, we hang up and and end the recording today, is there anything that you would like um, listeners today to know, like any way to contact you or a website you'd like me to send them to? Just 
maybe give them any information you'd like them to have. Yeah, brianzond.com is a good place to find me. you got to spell it, right? B-R-I-A-N-Z-A-H-N-D, brianzond.com, or you know, just Google Brianzond and it'll, it'll point you in the direction. And if you're interested in the books, you can get them at Amazon or wherever. Okay. Well, great. Well, we're going to end the call about right here, but uh, thank you again uh, on behalf of the Voices in My Head podcast. I really appreciate you being on today, Brian. Well, the fun being a voice in your head, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick Lee James. If you'd like to know more about me, my ministry, my music, my life, go to my website at rickleejames.com. You can also download my free mobile app from iTunes and on the Android Marketplace. And I'd love this to be a community experience, so if you call 937-505-0162, you can leave feedback, you can give me suggestions for future shows, you can even record comments that I can play on the next podcast. So let's make this something really great together. 937-505-0162. Thank you so much for listening to Voices in My Head, the official Rick Lee James podcast. God bless.